what do we do when we are faced with a spiritual crisis? You know, Jesus never said that our Christian life would be easy. In fact, he said quite the opposite. He said that we would face trials and pressures and challenges. Now, these challenges can be external to us, and we'll see that in our passage this morning, um, and as many Christians around the world experience in a very real and tangible way. Or these crises can be more of an internal nature, uh, and I'll be sharing a bit from my own life and how God has used this to challenge and grow me. But regardless of the nature or the source of the spiritual crisis, what do we do when they inevitably arise? What do we hold on to? What I'd like to suggest is a strategy that really isn't all that surprising, uh, that when we're facing a challenge to or in our faith, that we focus on what we know about the person of Jesus Christ, and specifically what he did for us on the cross. And I'd like to do this by examining the account of Jesus' healing of the blind man in John chapter 9. Uh, but first, let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you for another opportunity to gather together for worship, uh, encouragement, and growth in you. Uh, we pray that you be with the Freemans as they spend time with family and friends, and that it would be a time of relaxation and rejuvenation for them, and that you would keep them safe as they travel back home. We, I thank you for this opportunity and privilege to share with my church family, uh, hear how you have used this passage to strengthen and grow my faith, and I pray that it might be an encouragement to others. Amen. Uh, if you'd like, you can open up your Bibles to John chapter 9. Uh, there should be available Bibles available underneath the seat in front of you, uh, and as Pastor Jason always encourages, feel free to uh, take that Bible with you uh, if you'd like one in your home, your car, wherever. Um, we're actually going to be starting our focus in verse 24, which is kind of after uh, what some might consider to be the main event of this narrative. Uh, but while you're finding that, let me just briefly catch us up on what's happened so far in this story. Jesus and his disciples are in Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles, and just to help us place this in the timeline of his ministry, we're probably a few months or so uh, before Jesus' death and resurrection. Now, that, of course, also happened in Jerusalem, or, or just outside of it. Uh, but Jesus is going to actually leave Jerusalem shortly after the events of this story, head back up north to Galilee, before returning to Jerusalem for the Jewish Passover uh, and what we now know as Holy Week, which, of course, culminates in his death and resurrection. So we aren't quite yet at the climax of his ministry, but we are about three years into it. And he's definitely on the radar of the religious leaders by this point. And as we'll see, they've already kind of started to formalize their response to him. So Jesus and his disciples, they're walking along in Jerusalem when they come across a blind man. And somehow it is known that this man has been blind from birth. Now, the disciples ask Jesus a very interesting question. They want to know if this man was born blind because of his sin or his parents' sin as if those are the only two possible explanations. Now, this actually gives us a bit of insight into some bad theology that had crept into parts of Jewish society at the time, uh, in that there was this assumption that an ailment like this had to be the result of a specific sin rather than just the result of the general brokenness of the world from original sin. However, Jesus, as he very often does when answering questions, completely shatters the assumptions that are behind the question and responds that it wasn't because of any specific sin that this man was born blind, but rather that the works of God could be displayed in him and bring God glory. Now, there's probably a whole sermon series just in that exchange alone, and that's definitely not a task for the B team. 
But let me just point out one interesting aspect here. The blind man didn't seek out Jesus, or as far as we know, even call out to him or attract his attention. There certainly are those accounts in the Gospels in which individuals actively sought out Christ, or others did on their behalf, and of course he responded to them as well. But in this case, Jesus appears to initiate the healing that occurs, and it's not the last time we'll see him do so in this chapter. So after this little theology lesson, Jesus does something very odd, very raw, and one might say very intimate. He spits into the dust, then he bends down and mixes it up with his hands, making mud, and then he takes that mud in his hands and he packs it into the blind man's eyes. Now to us, with our modern knowledge of germs and communicable diseases, this strikes us as a bit unsanitary, and certainly not the way one goes about addressing a serious medical condition. But to the Jewish culture of the time, who weren't distracted by such concerns, they might have thought back to the creation story in their holy scriptures and how God had formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into him life. And I think it was perhaps Jesus' intention that they think of that. You see, Jesus was constantly providing signs and clues, in addition to direct statements, that he was more than just another teacher or prophet or even miracle worker, but that he was and is God himself. And once you start to look for them and recognize them, they're all throughout the Gospels. Demonstrating and revealing that he was God was perhaps the most critical aspect and purpose of his ministry leading up to his death and resurrection and atonement for our sin. So after he puts the spit mud on the blind man's eyes, Jesus tells him to go wash it off and moves on with his disciples. The blind man goes to the pool, he washes it off, and can miraculously see for the first time in his life. And so everyone rejoices with him, for the, for this, with this man, for the gracious work God has done in his life, and everybody worships God, end of story. Right? Wrong. You see, the problem was, or at least the perceived problem was, that Jesus healed this man on the Sabbath, the one day a week that God had instructed Israel in the fourth commandment to leave the fields and rest from work, a regular reminder once every seven days to trust in God's provision for them. But over the centuries, the religious leaders had taken this good gift and turned it into an oppressive burden. They stirred up all sorts of specific rules about what defined work about what defined what work was and wasn't, and therefore what wasn't allowed, and apparently miraculous healing was considered work. So they were, they were so focused on their own righteousness that they could not see a literal fixing, a redemption of the broken creation right in front of their faces. And of course, by this point, they were threatened by Jesus' popularity and authority and assumed that he was interested in their power, and so they were constantly looking for ways to bring him down. They see an opportunity here, and they jump on it. The first thing they do is interview the formerly blind man himself, and he just simply tells them what happened. They don't really believe him. They're convinced there's some sort of con job going on. Maybe he was never really blind. And so they go to his parents and interview them. Now, his parents are rather nervous about the whole situation and are at least familiar enough with Jesus to know that the religious leaders don't like him and have actually threatened to kick anyone who claims that Jesus was the Messiah out of the synagogue, basically excommunicate them, which is a very big deal. So while they are willing to say that the man was their son, and yes, he was born blind, they aren't really willing to go much beyond that. In fact, they effectively punt back to their son, saying, he's old enough, ask him. 
Now, I'm not sure what the next Mother's Day or Father's Day looked like in that household, <laughs> but I'm guessing there probably wasn't a world's greatest dad mug involved. So here's where we'll pick it up in verse 24. This is the gospel according to Apostle John, chapter 9, verse 24. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know this man is a sinner. He answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, Why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin, and you would teach us. Notice again that assumption. And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. This is the word of the Lord. So here's a man who is facing what we could call a spiritual crisis. This guy has had quite a day or a week. We aren't really sure of how much time has passed. But think of what he's been through, starting with the fact that he's now visually seen for the first time in his life. Imagine the sensory overload and the range of emotions. You know, we tend to imagine that it would only be positive feelings, and I'm sure that there was intense gratitude and optimism. But we also know from contemporary accounts that people who have received their vision or hearing for the first time in their lives through, mod through modern medical interventions are often so overwhelmed by all the sensory input that it can have a significant and sometimes negative impact on their emotional health and that they actually need to temporarily retreat back into darkness or silence in order to cope. Moreover, this man has had a personal encounter with the living God in the man Christ Jesus, although he doesn't know that yet. All he knows is that some strange man pressed wet spit mud onto his face, told him to rinse it off, and then the light floods in. And finally, he and his family are now under intense pressure from the religious leaders of their community to deny any of this happened. You have to understand what is at stake for him if the religious leaders aren't pleased with how he responds. This is not as simple as he and his parents just going down the street to the, another church. The synagogue was central to the community then, and he risks being cut off from everything. As a blind man, he's probably known nothing except begging, and the synagogue very likely could have played a role in making sure that he was kept fed and clothed. But is that going to continue now that he can see? He likely has no skills by which he can earn an income. And if the reality of this situation hadn't already entered his head, it likely is now. His very livelihood could depend on how he responds to this pressure. He must be overwhelmed and frustrated. 
And I think we can see some of that spill out in his response. As farther down, we see him almost lash out in sarcasm and taunting. There is a bravery and even biting quality to his words that, while amusing to us and likely the Apostle John as he records them, are perhaps a reflection of the hard and despised life that he has lived as a blind beggar and assumed sinner. But he will not be shaken. He will not be convinced to even pretend that he doesn't know what happened to him. For me, the signature statement of this passage comes at the beginning of the second interview in verse 25. He answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, though I was blind, now I see. What is this man's response to the significant crisis he now faces after healing? He responds with what Christ has done for him. He was blind, but now he sees. By the grace of God, I was fortunate enough to be part of a great youth group uh, in my home church as, as a high schooler, and that included vibrant, spirit-filled worship led by talented musicians. And through that, I was able to experience wonderful times of worship with my friends and youth leaders, and I still believe it was a gift from God for which I'll always be thankful. It was a time of great encouragement and growth in my faith and a taste of the joy that is in following Christ. After high school, I attended a Christian college in which the worship opportunities only increased. Chapel three times a week, Sunday night worship, dorm worship. Around every corner was a guy wearing chacos, strumming chords on an acoustic guitar and singing praise songs. And the quality was fantastic. There was a music conservatory that was attached to the school, and that attracted musicians from all across the country who were looking to hone their gifts in service of the Lord. But something wasn't quite right. Despite all the opportunity, I wasn't able to experience the same joy in worship. It wasn't really a problem at first, as there were many other good distractions in new friendships, sports, engaging classes, and life as a semi-independent adult. Probably some video games in there as well. But as the novelty wore off and I became more settled into college life, I slowly began to worry about what this lack of emotion in worship meant. But I didn't panic. I knew what the problem was. They weren't playing the right songs. It's not that the songs that they chose were necessarily bad. They just weren't as good as the songs we sang in high school. And then when they did sing the right songs, the tempo was way too fast. Unless, of course, it was too slow. Or sometimes it was the instruments. I mean, did the drummer really need to be that loud? And let's be honest, the electric guitarist is probably just looking for some attention. I'd be sure to add him to my prayer list for extra humility. <laughs> but slowly all these excuses became insufficient, and I started to wonder if maybe the problem was with me, or maybe even with my God. What if all these emotional times of worship in high school hadn't really been real and were just the product of immature euphoria? What if God wasn't really interested in connecting with us, or at least me, in such a personal way. Slowly the weight of these questions began to pull me down and I was facing a genuine spiritual crisis. Why would God allow this to happen? Looking back, I now believe again that he was moving in my youth group and changing lives and allowing us to experience him in a real way. Why would he take that away? Now, C.S. Lewis explored this in his book, The Screwtape Letters. Now, if you're not familiar with The Screwtape Letters, 
brief explanation is always needed before quoting from it, lest you leave your audience significantly confused. You see, the letters are a fictional correspondence between two hypothetical demons, as the more senior demon, Screwtape, instructs the junior demon in training, Wormwood, on how best to lead and tempt humans away from following Christ. And therefore, because it's written from the perspective of a demon, the protagonist and antagonists are switched. The enemy is actually Christ. So, keeping that in mind, Lewis says here, he wants them, meaning Christ, he wants them to learn to walk and must therefore take away his hand. And if only the will to walk is really there, he is pleased even with their stumbles. Do not be deceived, Wormwood. Our cause is never more in danger than when a human, no longer desiring but intending to do our enemy's will, looks round upon a universe from which every trace of him seems to have vanished and asks why he has been forsaken and still obeys. You see, according to Lewis, feelings of abandonment in the Christian life can actually lead to growth in our faith if we can choose to remain obedient in the midst of the crisis. But how do we choose that? How do we choose to remain faithful when our feelings don't align? I think we have to return to what we know, and indeed, that was a key factor of God's grace that ultimately led me out of that crisis. Like the man born blind, I had to get to a place where I could say, look, I don't know why God seems to have withdrawn or why I'm hurting right now. I don't know about all the questions that have been raised as a result of this. But here is what I do know. Christ died for me, and that is enough to demand my repentance and obedience. He doesn't owe me anything else because the truth is he didn't even owe me that. You know, Jesus tells us in Matthew 22 that we are to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And I wonder if God was trying to teach me to love and worship him with my mind. I had the heart part down, or at least partially down, connecting with God and my fellow believers through worship, and that was a good thing. But I had let a good thing become an idol, and the emotional affirmation that I received through worship had become my God. You see, I wasn't worshiping because what God had done for me. I was worshiping because of how it made me feel. I needed to be reminded of why I was worshiping, and that comes in the form of knowledge and using the mind that God has given me to meditate and study on who he is and what he has done for me. And here's the cool part. The focus on what I know or worship with my mind has enabled a deeper and more genuine worship of the heart. What I found is that learning and increasing my knowledge of God, a.k.a. theology, is often accompanied by a joy that isn't dependent upon the tempo of the music or even the presence of music at all. It's a joy and a peace that is based on the knowledge and the wonder of the God of the universe. Returning to the text, we see a similar progression for the man born blind. In verse 35, it says, Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? Note again that it is Jesus that seeks out the blind man, not the reverse in this particular story. And Jesus challenges him to increase his knowledge to beyond the event and beyond even his personal experience, the knowledge of a person. And not just any person, but the Son of Man, which is this rather unique title that Jesus often gave himself in the Gospels, but that had deep messianic roots to the Jewish culture. In short, Jesus is asking him to believe that he is God and inviting him to know him. 
And in verse 38, the man responds, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. His knowledge, his belief in Christ, both in what he had done for him and just as importantly in who he was, led him into genuine worship. Now let me take a few minutes to acknowledge that many of us can at times face a spiritual crisis in which knowledge can't be a comfort because perhaps knowledge isn't there. I've spoken this morning about how when we are in the midst of a crisis that we should remind ourselves of what we know about Christ and what he did for us on the cross. But what if we don't know that? Maybe you've never been convinced of that fact and can't intellectually accept it. Or maybe you did at one point in your life, but now maybe you aren't so sure. Or there's other things in the Bible that confuse or even frustrate you, and you feel that starting to threaten that which you had previously known and believed. I'd like to give a couple brief pieces of advice on how to approach this doubt, but first I want to make clear that while I believe God can and often does use our doubts to ultimately strengthen our faith and life in him, I don't want to romanticize that doubt. You know, there's an implication in our culture that doubt somehow makes us more authentic individuals, and certainty about anything, but specifically spiritual matters, has become a bit of a dirty word. And unfortunately, that can sometimes creep into the church itself. You know, I, I don't hear it as much as I did perhaps 10 years ago, but for a time, it was trendy for some Christian leaders to explore difficult topics without providing clear biblical answers, often just claiming, hey, look, I'm just asking questions. I think we need to be very careful as Christians that while we acknowledge doubt occurs and that we don't condemn it, we also don't celebrate it as a means unto itself. We do not serve a God of confusion, but a God that actively reveals himself to us for the purpose of being clearly known. And of course, nowhere is this more evident than in the incarnation itself, in which God literally became a man for the purpose of restoring a broken relationship and being known by his creation. So with that in mind, here are a couple suggestions if you are struggling with doubt in some way. First, approach, approach your doubt with humility. And I don't say this because humility is a Christian virtue, though of course it is, but rather because of the reality of the world around us. I think most who are being intellectually honest, whether they're persons of faith or not, would acknowledge that there are aspects of the human experience that are, really are incomprehensible to our minds. You know, the popular narrative these days is that faith and reason are somehow in conflict with each other. Our culture will tell us on one hand that it's fine for us to have our faith, but just don't pretend that it's well-reasoned. Hey, if it works for you, if it makes you happy or helps you function in life, great, good for you. But if you're going to be an adult, and if you're going to have a conversation in the public sphere, well, then we need to put those fairy tales aside and only speak about truth in terms of that which we can prove and reproduce in some laboratory. But the reality is, is that all worldviews, including that which supposes a universe with, with no God, have some degree or element of faith or assumptions about why things are and how they came to be. You know, go on YouTube sometime and listen to some of the brilliant men and women in the field of theoretical physics talk about some of the big questions of our universe, about, such as the cause of the Big Bang or how to reconcile the apparent conflict between the theory of relativity and quantum physics. Listen to them try to explain why the very laws of physics themselves appear to be incredibly fine-tuned in order to support even the possibility of life. 
Listen to them speak on these topics and you'll start to notice a subtle shift in their language. It starts to become less cold, hard facts and more the language of philosophers or even theologians. Now, they may not see it that way and would perhaps argue that it's just a matter of time before we're able to prove and observe these things directly. And that's probably true to some extent. All of humanity has benefited greatly from those who have pushed the boundaries of about knowledge about the natural world and seek to understand it. You know, we as Christians have nothing to fear from the truth that is discoverable via the scientific process, as all truth is God's truth. But it also seems clear, and most philosophers will now admit this, that there are many questions about our existence that will never be answered by an experiment. So why do I say all this, and what does it have to do with humility and doubt? You know, I think sometimes we can get worn down by the skepticism of the world, and in the midst of a spiritual crisis, it can sometimes feel like we're just mustering our strength to keep believing the unbelievable. And we're tired, and we're tempted to just let it all go, and just believe in the simpler stuff that the rest of the world accepts. But I think we need to recognize that just like there are difficult questions about God, there are equally or in my opinion, more difficult questions about a universe without God, such that we aren't in reality jumping from unstable to stable ground. And that's where we need to have the humility to admit that we ultimately aren't going to find satisfying answers by reason alone. And we're going to have to put our faith in something. One simply doesn't live without faith in some form. Second suggestion for approaching doubt is not to do it alone. The church doesn't always feel like a safe place to confide that we are at times weak in our faith because we tend to wrongly think that the strength of our faith is more important than the object of our faith, when of course exactly the opposite is true. Or maybe sometimes it's less a feeling of shame and more of a sense that in order to sincerely and honestly evaluate our doubt, we have to remove ourselves from those voices that could influence us back into belief. We think we need to figure this out for ourselves and do it alone in an unbiased environment in order to determine if all of this is actually true or not. But of course, the reality is, is that unless you're going to go be a hermit in the high country, that there really is no way to remove yourself from all influences that might impact your view of the spiritual world. And that by removing yourself from your community of faith, all you're really doing is allowing the culture around you to be the sole voice, the only input into your evaluation of reality. And let's be honest, that's not an unbiased voice. So I'd encourage you to find a Christian brother or sister that you trust and bring those doubts to them in humility and a willingness and openness to have your faith affirmed and strengthened through that. You know, we tend to think that with all of our technological advances that we're on the cutting edge of all knowledge and that our questions and doubts must be brand new. But the reality is, is that Christianity has had 2,000 years, and really more, before going back before Christ, of brilliant minds that have wrestled with the issues that are at the core of these questions. And their defense of the Christian faith in these areas can be of great comfort uh, and serve to strengthen your faith. Finally, let me close with a challenge. 1 Peter chapter 3 tells us to always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. It doesn't say to have an answer for everything. It says to have an answer for our hope. And what is that answer? It's the cross, and just as importantly, the empty tomb. 
It's not a feeling. It's not an emotion, though those very often do result. It's a real historical event that changed everything. One thing we know, we were blind and now we see. Lord, I thank you that you are a God that seeks to know us and be known by us. I thank you that we are made in your image with minds that pale in comparison to yours, but nonetheless have an incredible capacity to grow in knowledge of you and this world that you created. But I thank you most of all for the gift of your son, the ultimate expression of your desire to know us. Lord, I pray that you always keep the reality and the gravity of that gift and your sacrifice for us fresh in our minds, and that the gospel would be an anchor to us when our faith is challenged. I ask all these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.